All right, Linda, do you want to play a game? Oh, I'd love to play a game, Emily. All right, I'm going to give you three movie quotes, and you're going to try to guess the movie that I'm talking about in this week's episode. Are you ready? I am ready. (laughs) Okay, here we go. First quote. I lost it. We'd only been gone for two days, but somehow the town seemed different, smaller. Any ideas? Uh, it's a live action movie? It's live action. You want the second one? Yes. Second one is, I was 12 going on 13 the first time I saw a dead human being. Oh, shoot. I know this. Uh, is it Stand By Me? It is. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This is season two where we're talking about 80s and 90s kids movies we grew up loving and sometimes fearing. This one sort of kind of hits both. I love it because of the beautiful story of how sometimes friendship is family and that sometimes people come into your life for a season and then they leave. Um, But when they're with you, it's beautiful. And I also feared it because Kiefer Sutherland can be really creepy and terrifying. Yes, today we're talking about Stand By Me. But before we dive into our spoiler-filled summary of the movie. You know that we have to get a little bit of lazy internet research. Are you ready? Of course, the movie is based on a novella by Stephen King called The Body. Columbia Studios thought the title sounded like an adult film, so Rob Reiner changed it to Stand By Me after the Ben E. King song. Reiner purposefully looked for young actors that fit the personalities of the characters. So Will Wheaton, Jerry O'Connell, River Phoenix, and Corey Feldman were basically just playing themselves on screen. And he actually got them together before filming started so that they could bond and really appear as friends on screen, which I thought was adorable. The kids didn't see the body until they filmed the scene at the end of the movie. Reiner wanted the reaction to be as real as possible. They tend to do that a lot with kids in movies. Um, You hear that a lot about, especially if there's a scary character, or I remember reading or hearing somewhere in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy first sees the wardrobe and opens the door, that was the first time she had actually seen it. They wanted her to really have that, that reaction to it. So, I mean, I guess it would probably work. Budget was $8 million estimated. Gross U.S. in Canada, it made $52 million or over $52 million, which isn't bad. Since 2007, the town of Brownsville, Oregon, continues to celebrate its claim to fame as one of the filming locations for the movie. I love that places do this. We talked about it on Tuesday with Ernest Day in Tennessee. The fact that Oregon does this as well. They established the annual Stand By Me Day that involved events from the film, including a pie eating contest. The town even places a penny in the street for visitors to find, just like Vern does at the end of the movie. And for the 25th anniversary of the film, the cast revisited the location for interviews and contests and even an outdoor screening of the film. The town officially declared July 23rd as its permanent Stand By Me Day in 2013 with fans returning each year to celebrate the movie. I just, I love that. I love that there was a shared experience enough that, you know, there's a a town holiday about it and that people still like to celebrate it. That just makes me happy. 
In the pie-eating contest scene, the vomit was made of cottage cheese and blueberries. Ugh. And Coca-Cola bought Embassy Pictures, the film's original production company, and announced that they weren't going to fund Stand By Me just two days before they were set to start shooting. But television legend Norman Lear was one of the three owners of Embassy prior to its sale, and he believed in the project enough that he agreed to personally foot the $8 million budget. That's sweet. I'm so glad he did because can you imagine not having this film today? That would be so sad. So sad. But who is ready for the spoiler filled walkthrough of the movie? All right, here we go. A gut punch from the get go is a hard way to start a movie. A man sitting contemplatively in a car as Stand By Me plays in the background and a newspaper on the seat next to him with the headline about the death of a man. It's a lot. And you know, you kind of know more is coming. That like if it's going to start out sad, there's going to be a reason for that sadness that you're going to have to to live through. It's older Gordy, though. Our narrator about to tell us about a very special couple days one summer when he was a kid, when he was 12. Then we meet young Gordy in Castle Rock, Oregon, strolling through town, the sound of the 50s playing on the radio. He heads over to a treehouse where his friends are playing cards. I love it when there's a treehouse. We're going to see another treehouse next week. I think it's because I always wanted a treehouse and never had one. I just I think it's a great way, kind of secret way that kids get together. I don't know if it's secret. Everybody probably knew that there was a treehouse. But this the gathering point. I always loved that. So you also have that in Now and Then, which you're going to see as we talk about 90s movies. I like treehouses. But, of course, they're in there. They're playing cards. They're telling dirty jokes. And they're smoking, as, you know, 12-year-olds do. Teddy is the son of a man, one of the boys, with some problems and is a bit crazy himself, played by Corey Feldman. Chris, the leader of the gang, is the bad kid in town. And I'm using quotes t- talking about this. That He's played by River Phoenix. Poor guy has a reputation that he inherited. Now, When I started school, there was a bit of a reputation because my older brother had gone through before me. Thank goodness it was a good reputation. There there was also, though, expectation on there because he was a very good student. It was always kind of assumed, I guess, that I would also be a very good student, and I was, but it felt like pressure at the time. But thank goodness I didn't have this bad kid stereotype that I had to try to live down. That would have been awful. Then Vern shows up with a story played by Jerry O'Connell. And of course, Gordy, I forgot to mention, is played by the brilliant Will Wheaton. Who does not, who doesn't love Will Wheaton? Oh. Um, but Vern, he, um, he's the last of this little squad. He's not a born storyteller, but it's a showstopper. Nonetheless, he overheard, he was digging for, <laughs> he was digging for pennies under his porch which is a thing. I'd kind of like to understand that a little more. And he overhears his brother, who um, we're going to find out later is a part of a gang, talking about a dead body near the train tracks, that him and his friends stumbled upon this dead body of a boy who had been missing. And because they had just stolen a car, they chose not to go to the authorities to tell them about the dead body. So the group, so Vern rushes over to tell his friends, and the group decides to hike out to try to find the body themselves, thinking they'll be heroes when they report it. The town will love them. So that was, you know, sad number one is old Gordy sitting in the car. Sad number two, somewhere near this little town of Castle Rock is a poor young boy who had apparently had a run-in with a train. And we're right on to sad number three. 
So Gordy heads home to go on this hike to find this dead body, and he's starting to pack his bag for a pretend camp out at Vern's, you know, as kids do in stories. Like, you're going to tell him I'm at your house, and you're going to tell him I'm at your house. They've got this whole plan going. And we come to find out that Gordy's brother has recently passed away. The beautifully young John Cusack. Oh, my goodness. I had the biggest crush on John Cusack. He got a, a little weird for me in his adult years, but there, I loved him. Say Anything is problematic. I love him in Say Anything. 16 Candles is problematic. I love him in 16 Candles. Must love dogs. There, there's so many that I love him in. He just, he makes me happy. He makes me happy. But he plays Denny, who was killed in a car accident. So we only get to see him in flashbacks in just a couple. But what they really do well in the flashbacks is showing you the relationship between Gordy and his older brother. The family isn't doing well. Gordy's parents have basically shut down, and he's been on his own all summer. They don't really talk to him. He never really had a great relationship with his dad to begin with, and they don't really care where he's going or what he's doing, except for his dad who thinks that uh, he's hanging around with some bad people. He does not like Chris and Teddy and Vern. Parents can be judgy. So Gordy doesn't let that really get to him at the time, and he just he heads out. He's going to go find his friends. But he's kind of bummed after his interaction with his dad, understandably, but it's kind of a, a hard way to kick off a hike where you know you're going to go see, you know, like see a dead body. But he meets up with Chris, who is his best friend, who pulls out a handgun from a sleeping bag. He stole it from his dad. And as always, having a gun on your person is always, you know, just a great life choice. Chris tells Gordy it's not loaded, which turns out not to be true. And we get a sweet moment when you really get to see the first bond between these two as they argue about Gordy accidentally shooting a trash can. They actually communicate, though, which we're going to see that over and over and over in this movie. I think it's easy to think that teens and kids don't have these conversations, and I really hope they do. I hope they talk to each other about different things, um, and as we're going to see, show some vulnerability. That would be lovely. Then we meet Ace. So they're walking down the street together. We, we meet Ace. Ace is scary. Kiefer Sutherland is scary. The thing is, as I was watching this, I was also texting people saying, I both fear him and find him incredibly attractive at the same time. So it's, it's complicated. Ace is complicated. There's just something though about Kiefer Sutherland's voice that I have always found unsettling. And he has a menacing glint in his eye, except when he's playing Aramis in the three Musketeers. I mean, he's, he's perfect as Aramis, but Ace is a bad egg and obviously the lead bully in town. They set that stage pretty quickly. He grabs the baseball cap off of Gordy's head. It just happened to be the hat that his brother gave him before a fishing trip and then threatens Chris, who stands up for Gordy. Other piece of lazy internet research, Kiefer made a point to stay in character offset to intimidate the boys more. It had to have worked, though, because he intimidates me. I also, Like I said, I also find him attractive, so... That's a weird dynamic to go with, but I, I like that he stayed in character and just kind of wanted to give that sense of, you know, stay away from Ace. He's kind of crazy throughout the whole making of the movie. Gordy and Chris then meet up with the others and they take off down the railroad tracks, planning to follow it all the way to the body. Then we get a long stretch of character development. The story of four boys, four friends who come from different families and backgrounds, but have genuine camaraderie. 
Vern, who has a buzz cut, contributed a comb to the supply list in case they got interviewed about finding the body. A comb and a bedroll. That's all he brought. I mean, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. But in all fairness, no one thought to bring food. And as far as I can tell, only Gordy thought to bring a canteen. So only one kid out of four has water. And I don't know if there's places where this gets filled up, so I don't see how they they are going to survive. They pull their money, though, together and decide to stop at a shop near the junkyard up ahead to get some food before they get too far away from home. Then they hear the sound of a train. All of the boys jump off the tracks, but one, and that's where we get Teddy's development. He decides to, he's going to play chicken. He thinks purposefully putting himself in the way of danger makes him brave, and he likes to imagine himself as a soldier on the battlefield. His father was a soldier, um, and even though his father was kind of crazy, uh, I think he respects him and reveres him in a way because he knows what kind of bravery that had to have taken. And and Teddy is angry and he's broken. When Chris pulls him off the tracks, we get to see the bad kid has actually a heart of gold, especially for his friends. He's a peacemaker who refuses to let Teddy walk away without skinning it, calling a truce, clearing the air. I was trying to think if I had ever heard someone say skinning it. I know no one's ever said skinning it to me, and I'm probably glad. Um, I don't know if I would have known what they were talking about. That's happened to me a lot in life, to be honest, though. I was the kid in high school who never got the dirty jokes and then went home and asked her mother, like, what did this joke mean? <laughs> Which my poor mother, oh, God love her. She had to have been like, oh, my goodness. Um, thankfully, though, she never was like... She always answered it for me, which I appreciated. I also called her, we're getting way off topic, but I also called her in my fresh, during my freshman year of college because one of the history professors came up to me and said, hey, Emily, why don't you come to my office and chew the fat? And I had never heard that expression before. I didn't know what it meant. And I was terrified that something horrible was going to go down in this office. And she's like, no, he just wants to talk to you. I was like, Oh, is that what that means? No idea. All right, we got off topic. So as the boys are heading down the tracks, we transition to Ace and his crew on a joyride in the convertible. They're destroying mailboxes with a baseball bat. It's a whole game, I guess. And one Ace really wants to play. The scene is there for two reasons. One, to solidify the perception that Ace is a jerk who is the leader of a group of jerks. And two, to heighten the tension about the story of the dead boy. Vern's brother, the one Vern overheard telling about what about finding the body, is one of Ace's boys. And for some reason, he's choosing not to say anything to his fearless leader. And that's a part of the movie I never fully understood. I can, I can get not wanting to go to the authorities because you've stolen a car. But to not tell Ace, I don't, I don't fully understand why they did that. By the time... By that time, we flash back to Gordy and his friends, and they've made it to the junkyard. In order to get to the shop, they have to make it through the yard that is protected by a vicious dog. This feels familiar. We see this again in Sandlot. Sandlot is a brilliant movie. This is a task they they take they don't take lightly, right? So Teddy makes the first leap climbing over the fence, which is not surprising because he doesn't mind throwing himself into danger, and the rest of the bot boys follow suit the thing is that they seem to immediately forget that it's a dangerous situation but once they land on the other side it's a sprint it's supposed to be a sprint to make it through the junkyard to stay out of the clutches of chopper the guard dog 
Vern and Teddy take off like a shot. Not quietly, which would have probably been my method of choice, but then again, I'm a rule follower and probably wouldn't have climbed over a fence that said no trespassing in the first place. Chris and Gordy, on the other hand, get a little contemplative. They reminisce about a time Chris saved Teddy from falling out of a tree, something that haunts Chris a bit in his dreams. What if he hadn't been able to save him? What if he hadn't gotten there in time? Uh, Then they race throwing down their stuff. Um, I mean, literally race, not like they're running away from the dog. They throw down their stuff to see who can get to the other side. Again, that seems an odd choice to me. And the group just hangs out in the junkyard for a while since Chopper doesn't seem to be around. (laughs) So this, this tension that you thought was there is not there. You know, it, it was fine. They kind of forgot that they shouldn't be in there in the first place. That leads to throwing rocks at a can and having a conversation about the size of Annette Funicello's chest on the Mickey Mouse Club and how much fun they're having. That part is sweet, though, when they're like, you know, this is a good time. I'm having a good time. It's the kind of fun when you're kids having an adventure with your friends during the summer um, and kind of thinking you're doing your own thing. They then flip to see who has to go get the food, and poor Gordy loses. They have to move on before the junkyard opens in a couple of hours, so they, they want to make sure they're headed out in time. So he's um, he goes ahead to the grocery store or to the convenience store, the bodega. I don't know what it's at. He's outed, though, as Denny's little brother during a sad conversation with the store owner, leading to another flashback of a family dinner where Gordy is ignored by everyone except for Denny, the star quarterback, who takes an interest in the story his brother just wrote. So we find out that Denny is a football player. His dad seems really into this. Denny's a popular kid. He's got a lot going for him. Um, He's the athlete. And then on the other hand, you have Gordy, who's more the artsy kind. He's quieter. Um, He's gentler. And he just doesn't connect to his dad in the same way that Denny does. But Denny sees him. And so you learn that the one person in his family that got him is now gone. So Gordy doesn't, you know, doesn't quite know what to do, which is kind of sad. So Gordy heads back to the junkyard after he gets the food to find his friend safely on the other side of the fence. So he's walking through the junkyard and sees them on the other side of the fence, right? That's when he hears a man's voice and the sound of a dog barking. So he knows that the junkyard odor and chopper are around. So he just takes off sprinting, just takes off running, terrified by getting eaten by chopper. He manages to get over just in the nick of time and turns around To see that Chopper isn't a ferocious dog at all. I don't know what kind of dog he was. He kind of looked like a golden retriever, but he just kind of lays down in the dirt. So again, it felt like Sandlot in that moment as well, that Hercules was not the massive monster that they thought he was. He was just kind of a dog, and he was a nice dog at that. The junkyard owner runs over to the fence, though, and is pretty mad that they'd been teasing his dog and, and lashes out specifically at Teddy, yelling that his dad is a loony. So he... He recognizes these kids from town and he starts horribly. This is a horrible man um, holding their parents against them. So tells Teddy that his dad is a loony. Teddy is very protective of his father, who he proudly claims stormed the beach of Normandy and tries to go after him. But but the group pulls him back. And we see that growing up in a small town is hard. I I didn't grow up in a small town, but it, it when everybody knows your business, that has to be that has to be hard. You also see that with Chris, who is being called the bad guy or the bad kid because of his brothers, and Gordy, who can't live down the death of his brother, that they keep bringing that up, and why aren't you more like Denny? You can't escape your family or a tragedy. 
you also, though, get to see the loyalty of the group that doesn't ridicule vulnerability. Teddy is really upset in that moment. Um, and they're, and they're okay with that. They see him cry and they don't mock him. They just let him feel those emotions, which we're going to see this over and over and over again. And I think this is what makes the movie so beautiful. And I think a movie that young boys, young men should definitely see that it's okay to have emotions and to feel them. But then we're back to Ace's gang where they're carving the word Cobra into a member's arm, talking about the troubles of dating a Catholic girl while listening to the radio. The announcer breaks in to talk about the missing boy and you can see Vern's brother. He's, he's about to break. He's got to tell somebody, but the friend he had been talking to outside of the porch when Vern heard stops him like, no, he kind of changes the subject. Ace is still a jerk, has zero, you know, loyalty to anybody and would definitely have an issue with vulnerability. So you see the difference between these two groups more and more. The boys are trekking on a weight hanging over them after the confrontation with the junkyard owner. Gordy is afraid he's weird. Um, He says that to Chris, but Chris assures him there's nothing wrong with that. They talk about middle school and how it's inevitable that they're going to get separated eventually. They're going to go off to different classes, different interests. Uh, Gordy recognizes that Chris or Chris recognizes that Gordy is smarter than the rest of them. He's going to go off to college classes. Vern, Teddy and him, they're going to end up taking like shop. Which shop is, you know, kids that can build things, guys that can build things have a lot going for them. Um, But you you can tell that bothers Gordy. He loves to write, but now he claims to hate it. His cheerleader, his big brother, isn't around anymore to step in when his father gets critical. And Chris kind of calls him out on it. Like, no, you don't hate it. That's your father talking, Um, which is interesting. So you know that these boys know a lot about each other as well, which is kind of cool. The boys, they're observant and thoughtful with one another. Chris wants Gordy to do something special with his life. He's different. He knows it's not in the cards for him, but he wants his friend to be better, to get out of the town, to do better. And that feels a lot like Goodwill Hunting. I'm I'm just going to pretend that all of these movies stole from Rob Reiner's Gem of a Kid's flick, that they were like, you know what, let's throw this little element that we saw in Stand By Me into our movie. (laughs) The next obstacle is a very large bridge. The trouble, if a train comes, they've got nowhere to go but down, and you don't want to jump off this bridge because it's a couple hundred feet. Unsurprisingly, Teddy is the first to just start crossing. He's like, it'd be too long for us to turn around and go back and find a different way. we just got to go. We'll just go. You'd think they would all run. Uh, Again, logic is speaking in my head you know, proper life choices, but it seems to be a leisurely stroll. In fact, Vern is at the back crawling because there is a legit like seven inches between boards and you can see right down to the water below. Hard pass on that, by the way. I I would have just turned around and gone home. Every October there is, I don't know what, it's like a flea market and the Covered Bridge Festival in Mansfield, Indiana. And you have to, from once, you have to cross the bridge because the the market is on both sides of the bridge, <laughs> and I barely get across each time. I do not like to be able to look down and see water. So I get where Vern's coming from. They all are kind of stepping cautiously from plank to plank. But he's crawling, though, and there could be a train coming. <sighs> and Vern is devastated when his comb falls out of his pocket, and he just kind of watches it fall the 100 feet. That's when Gordy hears it coming, a train. It's, it's right behind them. 
not really in the uh, they talk about how when the movie was made the train is very far away they just used a different kind of lens to make sure it looked close but Vern he just is like you know what I'm going to keep crawling. I'll just try to call, crawl faster. And you see Chris and Teddy kind of take off out of sprint to get across. Gordy stands, stays behind and is pulling at Vern, trying to get him up. And he finally gets him up. It takes some some times, time, but it looks like the train is right on their heels. And at the last second, they leap off the side of the bridge and fall down a hill. They got far enough that the fall wasn't going to hurt them. So that was the tension-building part of the night, that they they dodged the train. Then they stop for the night. They build a fire. They tell some more crude jokes. They enjoy another smoke, and they settle in for one of Gordy's stories. They seem to love them, which I love, because that means he's told them several, and they remember them. I I love this group of friends where they, they share stuff about themselves together. It's wonderful. We then get the infamous story about the pie eating contest, an over-the-top story of revenge in which a young man who has been bullied about his weight drinks a jug full of like castor oil before eating a disgusting amount of pie. So they eat this pie, but they only eat the middle, which is interesting in a pie eating contest. To me, it'd be like you clean the plate, but no, you just have to eat little bits in the middle and that's considered finishing the pie. Well, then this boy vomits over the entire crowd. It's it's the story of a young boy, a young boy would come up with, you know, a young boy with a great imagination. Even better, he has the awesome support of his friends who just, they love it. Teddy doesn't necessarily love the ending. Vern's okay with it. In the end, they decide it was a really good story whether they agree with the ending or not. Then they talk about, you know, Goofy. Is he, what is he? Is he a, a dog? It, they talk about Pez. They talk about the $64,000 question and wagon train. It's the conversations of childhood. And definitely it's a type of conversations you have when you're trying hard to ignore the elephant in the room. The fact that you're camping in the woods on a trip to find a dead body. When the sounds of nature get too scary, they decide to take turns on watch with the loaded weapon and there is no way I would have gotten any sleep knowing Jumpy Vern was holding a gun somewhere in my vicinity which leads to sad number four during Chris's shift he wakes Gordy up who's having a nightmare he's dreaming of his brother's funeral and hearing his father say it should have been you if that was real that is the most who does that a really broken sad man I understand but Oh my goodness, that's horrible. And Gordy admits that he didn't cry at his brother's funeral and he really misses him. And Chris just says, I know. These two have a really special bond. Then Gordy tries to do the encouraging, pushing that maybe Chris could join the college classes with him in the fall. And Chris kind of scoffs, realizing that his family's reputation isn't doing him any favors. He's a Chambers. He's a bad egg. No way anyone is going to give him a chance. They immediately think he's a delinquent, a thief. So he had gotten blamed. Some milk money at school turns up missing, and he had gotten blamed for it. The school just assumed it was him. It was him, but he tried to give it back. So he approaches a teacher, and he says, you know, all of the money is here. He tries to give it back, except the teacher then pockets that money and lets him continue to take the fall for it, which really upset him. And then we get a glimpse of the toll that that has taken on Chris, gentle Chris, the peacemaker, who can't seemed to live up to the reputation set by his family, but he can't get away with from it either, who tried to do the right thing but was let down by an adult who he thought he could trust. I mean, the weight of the town on him. And, a, and another moment where the boys are allowed to be vulnerable with one another. Chris is crying, and 
Gordy doesn't even seem uncomfortable with that. He just, he knows his friend's upset and he wants to be there to, to support him. So then morning comes and the group sets out again. They're, they're getting pretty close. They follow the tracks for a while before deciding that they need to cut through a field that will shorten their journey, which of course leads to the next obstacle in a few minutes. But before that happens, we get Ace and Vern's brother at a pool hall where finally the beans are spilled that he knows the location of the dead body. Of course, the gang is going to go hunt it down. Um, they they also want to, you know, I don't think there was like a, a reward, but they want the glory of having found the dead body. And I think just the morbidity of, of finding it too, to pretend like they're going to that area for a legitimate reason and don't know that the body is actually there. They toss fishing gear in the car as a cover. So future obstacle, the Cobras are now headed in the same direction as our goofy gang is headed. So there's going to be a confrontation before that happens though. The young gang, our goofy gang has to survive the trek through the woods. Well, it's kind of a swamp. It's a little, they, they come across this like pond and it's a little deeper than they thought, which of course leads to um, everybody falling in, getting wet, some dunking and merriment and leeches which are just nasty and surprisingly fast little buggers because they weren't in the water that long. I mean, heaven help me. I hope I never come across a leech in the world. I mean, I've seen a leech. I just don't ever want one on me. And it's hard to imagine that once upon a time, sticking blood sucking things onto a person's body was made to believe to, to, you know, a curing method. Ugh. ugh. We get one last moment showing us that Ace is a true maniac when he nearly causes an accident playing chicken. It's an interesting parallel then between Teddy and Ace. Um, Ace's friends try to stop him and he doesn't stop. And then you have Teddy's friends who try to stop him and it works. It, it, it's just an interesting parallel there that you get. And then transitions immediately back to the boys who have now come upon the body. The body that hasn't even started to decay, despite the fact that it's been out there a while, and the elements, they're probably quiet and reverent seeing the young stranger lying under a branch, knocked out of his sneakers by the force of the blow. So I'm, I'm glad that they showed that proper emotion there. Um, it did, the, they do, we get to see the body too, and I, it does bother me a little that it didn't decay at all. I know they probably didn't want to make it too gruesome. They had to keep it a certain rating. I get that. I do get that. But if you've read the book Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach, it does not take long for a body out in the wild that is dead to start to decompose, especially if it's, you know, been out in the elements. So it's near water. It's hidden under some brush. The when the boys were sleeping, they heard what sounded like coyotes. So it's like, huh? I, I just don't believe that it would have not been touched at all. But you know, whatevs. I'm getting I'm getting morbid. It's fine. <laughs> so they plan to build a stretcher to carry him out, but the scene has really affected Gordy. He starts talking to the body, um, but he's really talking to his brother. He's caught up in his own grief. And while Vern and Teddy go to find sticks big enough to make the stretcher, Chris, Chris goes to comfort him. And then Gordy starts to mumble the words his father had said, that it should have been him, that he's no good. He's convinced that his father hates him. And supportive Chris steps up again, offering a shoulder. 
And of course, that's when H shows up. They weirdly start to argue who gets the body. It's very uncomfortable. Uh, forgetting that it was an actual human life that was lost. Completely, you know, disregarding that this this was a real boy. And Ace turns super maniac, threatening the bunch with a knife. Like, nope, this is our body. And just as he comes after Chris Gordy, who was the last on watch, who still has the gun, fires it into the air, forcing Ace to step back. They kind of have a showdown then. Um, and Gordy's like, Ace is like, you're not going to shoot anybody. And Gordy's like, no, I'm, I'm just going to shoot you, Ace. I'm just going to shoot you. Um, and the Cobras eventually back down, promising to even the score eventually. You don't get in the epilogue, the narrator epilogue at all, whether that happened. I'm kind of curious what that next step was. I, I don't want to, we'll talk about, I don't want a prequel or a sequel, but did Ace ever try to do anything or did he just let it go? Did he forget? So the goofy gang though, decides to leave the body where it's at. And instead of taking credit for finding him, they make an anonymous phone call to the police department. They realize, no, this was a real human being. This is not something, you know, that you take glory for finding. It was the right thing to do. And then they start the long trek home, miles and miles of contemplation about their adventures and the dead boy who was, wasn't much older than them. So all of the talking they do on the way there, um, it's a much quieter travel home. And like all the good adventures, their town, when they get back home, seem different. They seem different. Vern and Teddy head off, leaving Chris and Gordy to have one last conversation about Castle Rock, their futures, and believing there is more for them somewhere out in the world. Our narrator, old Gordy, lets us know that Chris took the leap and signed up for the college courses with his friend, it wasn't easy, but he, he did his best, and he made it through. He eventually became a lawyer, and then he was killed in a fast food restaurant while trying to break up a fight. Always the peacemaker. The screen fades to current day with old Gordy sitting in front of a computer screen writing this story. His son interrupts him, annoyed that they haven't left for, I guess, the pool he has on like an inner tube. <laughs> And we get a final line typed on the computer screen that says, I never had any friends later on in life like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone. Cue Benny King and a song that will never get old. The end. Summary. Um, just an offhand topic. I wrote my first book when I was about 15. It was a story about my neighborhood, my group of girlfriends, and late night adventures and boys. I actually still have it in a binder today. And when I finished writing it back in middle school, I gave each of them a copy when I was done. Deep down, this has always been the story I've wanted to write. The story about kids on the cusp of adulthood. That one last summer when you feel free and unencumbered by life. When everything feels like an adventure and the world is full of possibilities. Oh, I love it so much. There is something just so absolutely endearing about these kinds of stories. You see it in the Sandlot. And now and then... And my girl, it, it's stories about summer and there's, there's something about summer. I, I don't know. I think you learn a lot about yourself in summer. But anyway, let's go over the characters really quickly. I've already talked about them a lot, but a huge kudos to Rob Reiner for doing so much with development in such a short amount of time. Of the four main boys, Vern seems the least flushed out to me. We get bits and pieces of his personality, but no backstory like the others to really put him in context. Except maybe that he lives with the constant threat of being harassed by his brother, who is an Aces gang, I guess. But we get that with Chris as well. So I, I would have liked some more about Vern. 
kind of the same with Ace. He just seems to be a jerk for the sake of being a jerk. Big fish in a small pond. A teen terribly bored and given way too much freedom by his parents, maybe. It would be unsurprising to learn that he's got a troubled life, home life like Chris does, though. Plot, Stephen King is a genius. The fact that the master of horror has stories like this and Shawshank Redemption in him as well seems unfair. And Reiner's ability to bring it to life is just special. Spoiler, I'm a big fan of Rob Reiner's work. The Princess Bride, which tops all of my lists. It is my favorite movie of all time. Stand By Me, When Harry Met Sally, The American President, Spinal Tap. I even love a few of his lesser known and underappreciated titles, Flipped and North. I know they were kind of box office, office flops, but if you look at it from a storytelling element and again, that childhood element, he's very good at that. Anywho, back to the plot. Exposition, we meet the boys. Four boys with difficult lives who have found a camaraderie with one another in their small town. The exposition kind of follows us throughout the movie with flashbacks and conversations, but really everything we need to know about our main characters we learn in the first 10 minutes. Conflict. Somewhere about 20 miles from their home, a tragic accident has occurred and a young boy has been killed. The police can't find him, so they're going to. Rising action is the journey. Our intrepid crew strike out, facing a number of obstacles and learning quite a bit about themselves and each other. A rival, older, dangerous crew also learn about the body and decide to find it. The climax is when they discover the body and subsequently stand off against the, the cobras, the older boys, leading to a potential knife fight and ending up with a loaded weapon. Falling action is the boys travel home, forever changed by their experience, and the conclusion is friendships are mourned and remembered. A novella, a novella, you guys, all of that from a novella. I just, I can't love it any more than I do. Life lessons and final wrap-up, I think um, it was said best that, you know, you you don't have friends like you did when you were 12. Um, friendships are different at each stage in your life. Uh, but there was something special about childhood and loyalty. And I think a big part of it, too, that I kept talking about is vulnerability, that it's okay to be vulnerable with people and to share and to be open. Um, it's not easy by golly, it's not easy, but it's it's okay for that. And I think even if when you go into a situation with maybe not the best of intentions, they went to find glory by finding this body, that it's never too late to change those intentions. Um, they got there and realized that what they were doing was kind of wrong and they needed to show him respect and they changed their mind. And so the fact that you can, there are there's always time to change your mind except after it's done and then you can't change your mind. But um, don't be afraid to change your mind if you think what you're doing is wrong. So that's that's kind of it, you know, and um, maybe don't hide your pennies under a porch like Vern does and then you can't find them. That could be one. Uh, so, you know, final wrap up, character recasting. No, this is perfect. It's perfect. The boys are perfect. Do not touch it. Does this or did this need a sequel? absolutely not it it was such a complete story in of itself yes i do wish i had known what happened with ace and the crew afterwards um but no don't touch it rewatchability forceful yes i mean especially if you're in the mid mood for like reflective introspective storytelling maybe shed a tear or two it's one of those that always kind of makes me cry a little bit it's always a good rewatch 
But what did you think of Stand By Me? Is it one of your favorites? Is it hard for you to watch? Is it too sad? I don't think it's too sad. There's a lot of humor in it, but it is sad. What do you think about it? I would love to know what you think about it. But that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe and keep going on this journey with me. I have so much fun doing these. You know, I know I have like seven listeners, but I appreciate you seven listeners so much. Uh, And this has just been a fantastic creative outlet for me and I have loved doing it. And if you've got the time though, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the podcast, preferably if it's nice. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at gnome girl M and on Facebook is a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you.